we haven't met yet. Um, I'm Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're going to be continuing in the book of Acts tonight. We're going to be continuing in Acts. Um, so we're going to be in Acts chapter 15. Um, we're not stopping anything. We're just going straight through as planned. You guys have been going through the book of Acts on Wednesday nights. And we're going to be continuing to do that. Raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. Raise your hand nice and high. And uh, yeah, Tim will come and get you some. So if you guys don't have a Bible, but you guys are Wednesday night. You came. You came with your Bible. You're not messing around. If you, if you come on a Wednesday night, <laughs> you're coming with your Bible. Raise your hand if you, don't, if you need one. Raise your hand. Yep, see? I told you. Yeah, everyone's afraid to raise their hand now. It's okay if you need a Bible. We want you to have a Bible. <laughs> we want you to have a Bible. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 15, a super... A super exciting passage of scripture, at least to me, um, someone who is in church leadership. And and what you're going to see here in Acts, you're going to peer into church leadership. You're going to peer into what it looks like um, behind the scenes uh, of elders and pastors and apostles. So you're going to get that sneak peek in Acts chapter 15. And so um, please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord with me. Please stand. And uh, we'll only go through the first four verses, and then I'll, I'll let you sit down. But we'll, we'll get through a huge chunk of the chapter here. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and, and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they had caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses." So we're going to pray before the reading of God's word. We're also going to be lifting up our dear brother, uh, Scott Berman. Berman, um, he is fighting for his life right now. And he's our dear brother. And so we're going to be lifting him up in prayer. So why don't you bow your heads with me? Father, we implore of you, um, knowing full well that you have all authority and all power over everything, God. And, and we, we, first of all, we, we, we seek your will. We seek that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and we fully well understand that your ways are better than ours. But God, our hearts break when a dear brother of ours, our sister, is suffering. And so for our dear brother Scott, God, I just pray for your healing hand upon him. I thank you that you have given him so much of your Holy Spirit that he already has peace in this. So God, this, this entire ordeal, it seems less for his heart and more for ours. God, that you would comfort us and comfort him, comfort his family. Lord, we know that whatever your will may be, God, that it is good. But we pray, if it be your will, heal him. Heal him in the name of Jesus. And Lord, uh, as we study your word, God, may we give you the honor and respect that you deserve. Lord, that it is, it is your will that must be done in our lives, Lord. So uh, may this not uh, merely be an educational process for us, but a transformative process in us, Lord. We love you and we seek your will. 
God. <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't be here on a Wednesday night at 7. Lord, we want your will. And we are, we are excited to hear from it. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. Have a seat. So the church here in the book of Acts, it's, it's, it's in its early stages, right? The, the church in the book of Acts, they, it's, it's a very early stage in church history, right? This is the first century church we're talking about. Right, the first century church. This is the church where, where people are being converted by Peter, right? People are being converted by John the Apostle, James, right? Bartholomew, right? Philip, Thomas, all of, all of these original apostles, Matthew, right? All of these guys. And then we have other people that weren't apostles, but, that, but are big like Paul, uh, Paul, who later on became an apostle, right? And then we have Mark and we have Luke, Right? We have all of these guys who are leading people to Jesus. And they are establishing this foundation of a church. Without whom we wouldn't be sitting here today. And that's why, that's why I love that we're going through the book of Acts on Wednesday nights, right? Because if you're coming on Wednesday night, you're coming to get something extra, right? You're coming to get an extra dose. And, and there's no better way than looking at the people, right, that want it extra in their lives, the book of Acts is full of people that wanted more. The book of Acts is full of people that weren't satisfied with the subpar living, right? They wanted to see Christ's glory realized right here and right now. And that's why the book of Acts is so fitting for a Wednesday night service. And what we see here, guys, the church in its early stages, and, and through Acts chapter 1 all the way till about 10, there's, they have a huge problem with uh, Pharisees persecuting them, right? We see early on, we saw early on in the book of Acts that uh, Peter and John especially kept being thrown into prison by Jewish officials, by the Pharisees, right? Who had most authority in that day. And so at, the, at this point in time, um, back then, we see a lot of them uh, being persecuted by the Jews. But period, as time would go on, and as the gospel would press in, and as the Holy Spirit would do his work, we would see even Pharisees start to come to know Jesus, right? This was an amazing time in church where the people that were killing Christians are now becoming Christians. Big example is who? Saul turning into Paul, right? Saul, the Pharisee, turned into Paul, the apostle. This is a huge deal. And Paul was not the only Pharisee to come to Jesus. He was not the only one. There were many Pharisees who lived their entire lives observing God's law and living that lifestyle who would then later on to come, know, come to know Christ as the Messiah that their scripture had talked about. Hallelujah. And, and, and so some of these Jews, these Pharisees, they were people that came to Christ through observing the law, right? Because we see, we see in this passage where the Pharisees who are now Christian are saying they need to be circumcised, right? They need to follow the law in order to be saved. Now, now we look at this and we're like, come on, legalistic, like Pharisees, we've been through this, right? It's about time that you lighten up a bit, but you have to understand how these Pharisees actually came to know Jesus is through the law, right? By their careful study of the law, they, they figured out later on, whoa, this law speaks of Jesus, 
So we can't blame them too much, right? Because they had lived this entire lifestyle of being saturated, right? By the law, obeying the law, obeying the law, obeying the law. And now they have Jesus and they're trying to figure out how to balance the two, right? They're trying to figure out how to balance the two. And they do so by essentially saying, you must be a part of the Old Testament lifestyle and then be saved. So you have to observe the law, right? You have to discover the law and then you can only come to a full realization of who Christ is. And so that's what's being preached here. They're saying you need to be circumcised. You need to come into God's chosen people, right? You need to be a part of God's chosen people. And then you can be a part of the entire lifestyle of Christ. Now, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas contend with them. They contend with them heavily on this. Right? Because we know that there's nothing that we do to get into heaven. There's nothing we do to be saved. There's no law or nothing that you could do to your body that will make you come to Christ, right? We know this to be true. And Paul and Barnabas, they contend, they argue when they say that circumcision of the heart is what truly matters. That's what they declare in Romans chapter 2 and all throughout Galatians. They declare that, it, 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 all right, so for those of you that don't know what circumcision was, I mean, we know what circumcision is, right? But what it represented was the cutting off of the flesh, the, the covenant between God and his people, right? Essentially, it was, it, was the, it was saying, I'm going to die to myself, right? And I'm going to live to the will of God. I'm going to be a part of his covenant, his promise, his people. And what people would do is that they would circumcise themselves, right? As a symbol of that covenant, a symbol of the cutting off of the flesh. And, and, and so what Hebrews, what, what Jews would do, they, they would do this for centuries. They would do this for centuries because they needed to establish themselves as God's people. But as we learn in Romans chapter two, it, it's all about the heart because if someone's circumcised and they don't follow God, right? That does them no good, right? We learned that in Romans 2. If they, if they are circumcised and they have, they have not, their life screams nothing of God, that doesn't matter. But if you're uncircumcised, right? If you're not a part, if you're not a Jew and you are pursuing God, that makes you better than the person who's, who is circumcised and a Jew and not pursuing God. Does that make sense? So we know that it's all about the heart. Jesus was all about the heart, we have to make sure we understand that even as Christians who are saved by grace, I think a lot of the times we want to make it more about behavior and less about the heart, right? In verse two of Acts chapter 15, we're going to be going through a lot, try to follow along. It says, therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the, apostle and the, el- the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way to church, they passed by through uh, Phoenicia, sorry, that's going to be a hard word for me this tonight, uh, Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done to them. So, so here's what's happening in, in this story right now, guys. Here, here's what's happening in history. What's happening in history right now is that, is, is that Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're leading a lot of non-Jewish people to Jesus. 
They're leading a bunch of non Guys, this is amazing. At this time, where, where the Jewish people were the only people who got to hear God's law, who got to hear from God's word, right? And so it was a big, big deal that, 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 that the Gentiles would even be allowed to enter into the presence of somebody who is a part of God's people. So it wasn't that Gentiles were just not allowed into the people of God, but they weren't even allowed to talk to the people of God, right? Not allowed to do business with them. And so this is, this is just shattering all sorts of cultural boundaries for the Gentiles to be redeemed into the family of God. Because the family of God up until this point was exclusive to just the Jewish people. And, and, and so all these Jews, they're having a really hard time. And I understand this, right? We, we have to be able to empathize here a little bit, right? You have to be able to empathize. You know, you know when, when, you've, when you've lived in church your whole life and then your neighbor who's strung out on drugs his entire life and actually got your kids into it maybe, and they come to Christ, that, that's a struggle, isn't it? Think about someone who has cheated your family. Someone who has done something wrong to somebody, somebody that you care about. Maybe a parent or, or an aunt or an uncle that's abused you. I want you, I want you to think about that. What, what you can imagine is someone who should never be able to enter into the family of God. Now they're Christian and you've you got to realize there's a struggle there, right? We have to be able to, to sympathize with these Jews here. So Paul and Barnabas, they know that this is a problem and they're done arguing with them. And they're saying, do you know what? Because they're all Christians, which means when you're a Christian, this is going to be rough. Right now, we're going to shatter a lot of boundaries that the American church has built up, right? Um, but when you're a Christian, you're automatically under the authority of pastors and elders, right? I know that, that, that doesn't sit well with people, but when you become a Christian, you submit yourself to the leadership of the church that you attend, right? You are submitting yourself to that leadership. So Paul and Barnabas, they're saying, okay, you're not, you're not going to listen to us. We're going to Peter, right? You're not going to listen to us. We're going to John and James, right? Because they're your authority, right? They're your authority. And so we are going to bring this matter to them, right? And so what they do is that they gather all of the elders and the apostles and the pastors from every church in the region. Can you imagine that? I want you to imagine all, like, all the apostles and all the apostles' disciples that planted churches and all of those, uh, all those disciples all in one room. First century. That's I want to be in that room, right? I want to hear the discussion in that room. I want, I want to see that. Can you just pick, this actually happened, right? This actually happened. All of the original church leaders, the people who wrote the New Testament are in this room, okay? The people that were with Jesus and studied under Jesus for years are in this room right here. Every church leader, every church leader, except for one of the James. There was two James. One was James, who is the son of Zebedee, right? And the other was James, the brother of Jesus. James, the son of Zebedee, had already been martyred at this point. It says in verse 5, if you go to verse 5 with me, 
But some of the sect of Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them, to command them to keep the law of Moses. So at this point, guys, at this point, Paul and Barnabas are telling everybody in this group, like, hey, here's some awesome things that, the, that have been happening through the Gentiles, right? Paul and Barnabas, they're giving all these amazing testimonies because right before that, Paul and Barnabas were getting beat up, right? They're getting beat up and then people were still coming to Jesus, Right? That's pretty awesome. And so Paul and Barnabas are encouraging all of the church leaders in this. They're encouraging all of the church leaders. And then in the midst of that, in some of the Pharisees that are Christians, we have to remember they're Christians, you know? We have to remember that they believe in Jesus. They say, yes, that is great that the Gentiles are doing this. That's great that the Gentiles are coming to know Christ. But they need to be circumcised. They need to observe the law. Some of those elders, guys, all of the elders are, see, because these are all the elders, they're ex-Pharisees, right? Some of them, some of the church leaders are ex-Pharisees. And they brought up the big question. Do they need to be circumcised to be saved? Right? And don't get hung up on circumcision, right? Don't get hung up on that. It's a symbol, right? It's a symbol of the law. It's a symbol of the old covenant, right? It's a symbol of the old covenant being bound by the law of Moses, Levitical law, numerical law, all of those. I know it's bogus. And I, I, I know, I know the, the immediate reaction is, is to say to the Pharisees, come on, right? Because most of us, not all of us, but most of us in here are Gentiles, <laughs> you know, most of us in here are Gentiles. And a lot of you in here came to know Christ in your adulthood or in your early adulthood. And so could you imagine gentlemen, <laughs> can you imagine gentlemen, right? Can you imagine you're not, you're not a Jew and you come in and you come to know Christ. And then the elders of the church come up with some scissors, right? And they're like, all right, here it's, it's time. Right. And you're like, no way. Right. You no way. And, and so this is what's happening, right? There people are coming to Christ and these elders are coming. All right. Time to be circumcised. Right. That's what's happening here. So this is a real thing that's happening. This is a real problem. We, we can't, we can't, um, fantasize the Bible, right? It's, it, this really happened. And I know it's bogus. We're saying, Pharisees, come on. And we say that because we are a product of the decision that was made in this meeting. This decision that was made here actually affects us today. What Peter and James and Paul and Barnabas, what they were all discussing in this room actually affects the way we lead people to Christ here today. That's cool. And I know, and I know it's really easy for us to say, well, they're just being legalistic, but, but do you know what? I do the same thing. I'm not, I'm not going up to people asking them to, you know, do anything to their bodies. I'm not asking them to follow the law, but do you know what? I will ask people to come into the Christian lifestyle before I ask them to come to Christ. Won't I? How many of you have, have contended with non-believers, whether they be atheists, agnostics, whatever, and you have contended with them that they need to change some sort of habit that they have before they can come to Christ. How many of you have debated against their belief system or against their habits or against whatever culture they're in instead of actually asking them about their hearts? 
And so we do this too. We, we are so willing to argue over such, such other and secondary issues that we actually just graze over the fact that there are sinners who need a savior as we are, right? And so, yes, I, 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 can, I can, you know, rag on these pharisaical Christians all day long and call them legalists and say, I never have that problem because I'm not asking people to, like, uh, obey, like, Leviticus chapter 8 or whatever. I, I'm not doing that. But do you know what I am doing? I am asking people to stop doing something specific instead of telling them to come to Jesus. Right? So I, I, I am preaching morality sometimes above preaching the gospel, right? We, we are all guilty of this in some way, shape, or form. Because we get so heated up because, do you know what? We love to contend for things we're already good at. We love to argue things we already have grasped. If you don't struggle with alcoholism, you're so willing to demean it, Right? you don't struggle with homosexuality, you're so willing to debate against it. So, so, so there's things that we don't struggle with and there's, there's things that we have already made a part of our lifestyle that we're very willing to impress on other people. But we have to realize the Gentiles, they grew up with no concept of Jewish law. None. They, they grew up with no concept of it. But what they do know is that Jesus wants to save them. And that's what we need to be focusing on right? And all else will fall into place, won't it? All, all the morality, all the sanctification, doesn't that happen afterwards? Doesn't regeneration of the heart occur before sanctification of the heart? Doesn't the renewing power of the gospel, isn't that what causes the change in your hearts? Isn't that what happened with you and I? And so we have to, but we have to project that same compassion on other people as well. I will ask people, I will ask people to come into the Christian lifestyle before I ask them to come to Christ. And that's something, that's a sin, you know? And that's something that they address right here. It says in in verse six, it, it says, now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when they had been in much dispute, they argued over this. Right? They argued. You guys know that? Like all the apostles didn't always just get along, right? You guys know that there's arguing that occurs in church leadership? You guys know that there's serious butting of heads, right? There's some serious, serious arguments that occur. There's there's dispute, there's debate. You guys know that? In church leadership, got our church, our church does this too. Our church leadership argues. We disagree on many things right? It's, it's not just this, this one size fits all type. We, we don't always agree on everything. There's, there's, there, there must, we, we debate, we talk things through, right? And just because somebody argues, just because people dispute doesn't mean they're not unified. We need to make sure we know this. We need to make sure that just because you argue doesn't mean you're not unified, In fact, it says to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It means that it actually takes work to have unity, right? Could you imagine what it was like in this room? Just the church leaders, all the apostles, elders, and disciples of Jesus himself in one room, debating, disputing, and discussing, right? That must have been amazing. That must have been phenomenal to be in. Even if it was arguing, 
we're going to see the end result of this, and it's so good. But we must never fool ourselves, guys, because this, this allows us to peer into to one fact. The apostles weren't perfect. You guys know that? This allows us to peer into the fact that the apostles were not perfect. They were not perfect. We, we are able to see now their flaws, that they argued, that they disagreed, they dispute on things. We're going to learn things about Peter tonight that we wouldn't have maybe known before. We must never fool ourselves into thinking that one generation was far better than the one previous. We, we, we must not fool ourselves into thinking that one generation was amazing and it's only gotten worse from there. Every generation has its vice, right? Every generation has its vice. Every generation is wicked. It's been happening since the fall, right? There was never like one perfect, awesome generation, right? There, there was never just one generation that did everything right. <laughs> we, we all have flaws. There are issues. And because, guys, and, and they're arguing because there are issues that we can't simply just agree to disagree on. This whole circumcision issue and following the law issue, it wasn't one of those, well, we could agree to disagree, right? At the end of it, it wasn't one of those. And I feel like in our culture today, most issues are becoming that, aren't they? Most issues are, oh, well, we could agree to disagree type deals, isn't it? Right? We, we encounter this all day, right? We encounter it all the time with postmodernism that, that there's really no right opinion, you know? We can agree to disagree. There's some things you cannot just agree to disagree. You can't just agree to disagree because you don't want to argue. Because there's a holy way to argue. There's a holy way to contend with people. There's a holy, non-passive aggressive, non-gossipy type of contention and arguing. That can help build instead of break down. There's a godly way to contend with one another. There's a godly way to discuss things. There's a godly way for it to happen. Because the last thing I want you to think is that the Christian life should be this cookie cutter, never arguing, never any uh, dissension or division between you and your wife, you and your husband, you and your brother or sister or pastor. Because if you think that it's supposed to be perfect and there's never going to be arguing, what's going to happen is in your church family, you're going to disagree with something I say or Rob says or Mark says or one of the pastors say, and you're just going to go. Because that's what happens in our culture. We kind of disagree with something and instead of working it through and being willing to change our opinions or being willing to endeavor, what will end up happening is, well, I'll just find someone who agrees with me. And never actually consider that we're the ones that might be wrong. There are issues that we cannot simply disagree to disagree. However, the way the apostles handled this situation astounds me. And I just, I hope to apply this to every single argument I ever have. Right? I really do. I, I want to follow in their example here. So, so let's go. Let's go to, um, let's go to verse 6. Or, uh, sorry, verse 7. Verse 7. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, 
You know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Peter is telling the brethren, look, God has clearly chosen them. Do you know why he's chosen them? Because they have the Holy Spirit. They have the Holy Spirit. Guys, Peter is asking everybody to hear and consider the amazing things God has done through the Gentiles already. We've seen this in the book of Acts already. Some of the apostles, uh, some of the disciples and the elders of the churches are also Gentiles. And, and the Holy Spirit has clearly descended upon them. And the Holy Spirit descended upon them and the Holy Spirit uh, dwelled within them, not because they kept the law, but because they accepted Jesus. Because it is the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone that brings us into the family of God. The Holy Spirit is, it says in Ephesians chapter one, verse 13, it says, in him, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation in whom also having believed were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who in the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory, meaning that the Holy Spirit is the stamp, the seal, the guarantee of our inheritance. What I, what, it's Christmas time. I described this to Sunday night. I, I described this to our junior hires. Why don't you think of it this way? Christmas morning, you go up under the tree are a bunch of presents. You have your family members. Each family member goes to pick up the present and open the present that has their name on it, right? Right? Your name is that seal. It's, it's the proof of that it belongs to you, right? Right? And, and, and so I want you to think of the Holy Spirit in that term. It's the seal. He is the seal and the guarantee of your inheritance that I, if you think of heaven like Christmas morning, God is going to open up his presence and he's only going to open the ones that have his name on it. The Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit is the guarantee in the purchase of the purchased possession that you've, you've been redeemed by Christ's blood. Bam, stamp of the Holy Spirit is upon you. Not following the law. In fact, it says in Galatians, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit lusts against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. If you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The law, the Old Testament law is only there to point you to the character of Christ. And as it also declares in Galatians, which is to preserve you and take care of you until Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, he gives you the Holy Spirit. And now you don't just follow the law. You do more, right? You are led by the Holy Spirit. And it says right here in verse 22 of Galatians chapter five, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It says against such, there is no law. Meaning that if you are kind, if you are loving, you're joyful, you're long suffering and patient. If you are kind and good and faithful and gentle and you have self-control, what need of the law do you have? Right? You don't need any rules. I tell this to my youth kids very often. Hey, listen, you think Christianity is a whole bunch of rules? It's actually the opposite. If you're living by the spirit, you don't really need rules. 
If you need the Holy Spirit, if you have the Holy Spirit, you don't need rules to tell you what to do. You're living the way Christ did. Against such, there is no law. So the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of that law, the replacement of the law, better than the law. And so Peter is, is, is trying to explain to them, listen, since they have the Holy Spirit, they don't need to be circumcised and follow your law. The Holy Spirit is greater than your law. Do you guys understand that? And Peter's making a very valid argument here. It says, now therefore, in verse 10, if you go to verse 10, Acts chapter 15, we're still continuing. Now therefore, why did you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? Peter is saying, why do you tell them to follow the law? You know you can't even do that, right? He, he, Peter's also making a very logical argument saying, all right, you're telling people to follow all these rules. You're not even doing that. Why are you putting this bondage on them that you yourself and your fathers before you couldn't even keep? Peter's making a very good argument, but I want you to, I want you to be, pay, pay very close attention to the words Peter's using. I'm about to really defraud him right now. But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they, right? And so Peter's saying, guys, Peter's, Peter's sticking up for the Gentiles, essentially. You, know, you guys know that? Peter is sticking up for the Gentiles. He is defending the Gentiles, saying they are equal, right? They're not lesser humans because they didn't grow up with your law. They have the Holy Spirit. Why put this burden on them? Why treat them differently? I want you to pay close attention to what I'm about to tell you. Because in Galatians chapter 2, Paul talks about something that happened prior to this meeting. A little discussion that Paul and Peter had together. I want you to listen to this. In Galatians chapter 2 verse 11, but when Peter, Paul is telling this about what happened between him and Peter. But when Peter came to Antioch, which is Paul's home church, and where all the Judaizers were, where all these, these Pharisees were telling people they need to be circumcised, Antioch, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. <laughs> so Paul is saying, I came to Peter and I got straight up in his face. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, which were the Jews, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. <laughs> That's what Paul calls it, the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Do you know what Paul's telling Peter? Because here's what Peter was doing. Peter would eat with the Gentiles and he would hang out with all the Gentiles. And then the second some Jews would come into the room, he'd be like, I don't know these people, right? He'd be rolling with a different crowd. He'd act like the Gentiles wouldn't exist. Huh. And, and, and Paul got straight up in his face and he said, listen, you're not living like the Jews, but you're telling, that the, you're telling the Gentiles that they need to live like Jews? You're a Jew. You of all people should be walking upright. And, and listen, this is the same exhortation to you and me, brothers and sisters. 
This is the same exhortation to us. This is the same rebuke to me. You're a Christian. And, and you're, at, you're telling everybody else, they need to act a certain way. They need to act a certain way, but you're not even acting that way. And, and, and so this is, this is a rebuke to me as well. And so Peter, shamed in front of Paul, because he would eat with the Gentiles, he'd be buddy-buddy with them, and he would welcome them into the family of God. But then when some Jewish Christians came along from James's church in Jerusalem, he would, he would pretend like the Gentiles didn't even exist. And now Peter is before everybody, with Paul in the room, before everybody saying, men and brethren, men and brethren, your heart needs to acknowledge that these Gentiles are a part of us. You guys realize that? But what Peter is doing right now is he's saying, he, he says this, he says, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of disciples, which neither of our fathers nor we were able to bear? You know what Peter's saying? He's saying, don't make the same mistakes I did. Don't make the same mistakes I did. Take the plank out of your own eye like our Lord told us to. Don't make the same mistake I did. We can't hold these laws and neither can they. And so guys, the first key when you are arguing with a brother or sister, your wife, your spouse, whatever, when you are in a holy argument, when you're contending for truth, when you are standing for truth amongst other believers, because I'm going to tell you this. Yes, we can learn how to argue against the world all day long. But at the end of the day, I think the biggest enemy of the church sometimes is the church. And if we can't learn to discuss things with one another, who cares if we can discuss things with the world? If we are arguing and we are so divided amongst ourselves, what effect will we even have on the world? And so we need to learn how to contend here. And we need to take Peter's example because the first key when we are arguing with one another, when we're contending with one another is to learn from our past mistakes. Know when you have been wrong in the past. It will make you much more willing to be wrong in the present. Learn from your past. Learn from your past. The first key here is learning from your past mistakes. And the multitude kept silent after that. Everyone was silent in the room. Guys, there's, there's like a there's like hundred plus people in the room right now, completely silent after Peter says this. Do you know what? I, I, this is all speculation, but I imagine Peter being the man that he is saying this with tears in his eyes. Learning from his past. Verse 12, all the multitude kept silent. Then they listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders had worked through them among the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas then got the opportunity said, Peter's right. The Holy Spirit is doing radical things amongst the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit is doing some radical, radical things. And after they had become silent, James answered. Okay, so James, they're all in Jerusalem right now. Okay, James is the head honcho in Jerusalem. Okay, he is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. This is not James the apostle. This is James, the brother of 
Jesus, right? This is James, the brother of Jesus, the one who wrote the book of James, right? James, the brother of Jesus is here and he is now speaking. He is essentially the the lead guy in the church in Jerusalem. So everyone listens to what James says because ultimately amongst these, James has the final say. We actually learned this. When James declared something, it was said. That was it, right? That was it. And so he said right here, James says this, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with the words of the prophets, and the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Listen, James takes what Peter says and says, do you know what, Peter? Scripture actually agrees with you. He says this right here. He, he quotes Amos when it says, After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does, who does all of these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, James says this, therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those among the Gentiles who are turning to God. At the end of it all, you know, Peter listens. He listens, uh, James listens to Peter, right? I want you to picture because James, James, he makes a declarative statement. He says, I judge, right? I want you to picture James right now. He's kind of in the center of all this. He's the judge over this hearing, He's listening to Peter, he's listening to Paul, he's listening to the Pharisees, he's listening to everyone, everything that he's saying, and he's saying, okay, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying, Pharisees, brothers. I hear what you're saying. Paul and Peter, I hear what you're saying. It's time for the Bible. Right? He's saying it's time. Who does scripture agree with? You or you. Isn't that cool? James, in light of all this, he doesn't even really, he doesn't really even give his opinion. He just gives scripture to back whoever. And, and you know what? I, I, if, if James had read a script and, and if it ended up, the Pharisees were right, the Pharisees would have been right. Right. But, but he read scripture. He declared it. And Peter and Paul were right. We usually think of Peter as the lead authority in the room, Right because he's usually the loudest. But it was James here who brought the highest authority, the word of God. In order to further press the point of Peter, James used scripture, ultimately our highest authority. And so this is the second thing I want you guys to consider when you get into holy arguments, when you get into arguments between a brother or sister in Christ, a husband, a wife, a brother or sister, a parent or child, when you're arguing, is scripture used in your rhetoric? Is scripture being used in your rhetoric or just opinion, right? Are feelings are the only things being exchanged or is scripture being used? Because brother or sister, scripture does not back you up. You are sitting on sand. You're building your house on the sand, Right? Your foundation is not secure. And listen, listen, it's very easy to take any sort of scripture and take it out of context, right? The Lord will make sure 
you get yours after that, right? I, I, have, I have used scripture out of context so many times, and do you know what? It is always, 100% of the time, come to bite me back in the butt, right? 100% of the time. God will, God, God holds his word above his name. He's not going to let me defame it, okay? That's, this is not going to happen. But is scripture used in your rhetoric when arguing? Because if you're so right, you know, like if you are so right, then you have nothing to fear by going to the Bible, right? If you are so right, right? If your opinion on church leadership or your opinion on how to do this certain thing in church, if your opinion on how to deal with this brother or sister in the church, if you are so correct, right? If you are so correct, then you are going to have scripture. You're going to have it, Right? But, James does say this at the end. He does say this. But, that we write them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And, and so what essentially that James is saying here, he's saying this, he's saying something. He's saying, listen, listen, we're not going to harass the Gentiles and make them be circumcised and make them change all of these things. But we are going to ask the Gentiles to be polite to the Jews in their tradition. We are going to ask the Gentiles, don't egg them on by eating food sacrificed to idols. And sexual immorality actually in this context, right? When you do some deeper study, it actually is marriage ceremonies. Gentiles have their own way of doing marriage ceremonies, right? He's saying when you get married because eventually Gentiles and Jews are going to start marrying one another. Okay, why don't, please do not stumble your brothers and sisters by marrying people that you shouldn't be. Because Gentiles, in Gentile culture, it was, it, was, it was fine to marry your brother, your sister, your cousin, right? It was totally fine, right? Jews strictly forbade it. And so, and so what James is saying is like saying, don't do things that are bad for you, right? Don't do things that are bad for you and don't do things that are going to stumble your brothers and your sisters. What Paul would later on say in Romans saying, do you know what? If you're eating with a vegetarian, stop talking, just, just eat vegetables, Right? He's saying if, if you're with somebody that, that is super adamant on keeping the Sabbath day holy, when you're with them, keep the Sabbath day holy. If someone esteems one day higher than the other, it's okay. Just let them be them. Don't egg them on. Don't use your liberty and, and, and puff it up in front of people, right? Do you know what, guys? If, if, if there's a brother, I know a lot of people that really love to flaunt their liberty to drink. You know, I, I, I know a lot of Christian brothers and sisters that just love flaunting the fact, oh, I can have a beer anytime I want, you know, uh, a Christian liberty I can do. But, but, you know, they have a lot of brothers and sisters on Facebook and where they're posting all that, that they, they really struggle with alcoholism, right? right? They don't have that liberty. They don't have the liberty to just have a beer whenever they want, you know? And, and so we have to make sure to be sensitive, right? And that's, that's the third thing, guys. Are we sensitive to people? Are we sensitive to people's cultures, their, their predisposed values and the way they've grown up? Are we, are we putting that into, uh, into consideration when we're arguing with people, right? When, we, when we're commuting, communicating with people, we have to make sure to not just assume that they've had the same upbringing as us. We can't just assume they think the same way as us. We must be sensitive to their culture. We must seek to understand them before we argue with them, right? This is something super important for us. 
And so that's the third thing to consider when you're contending with your brothers and sisters in Christ is, are you being sensitive to their upbringing, their culture, their way of life? Because we have liberty in Christ. Lastly, lastly, it says in verse 22, we'll stop here. It says in verse 22, super simple, half of verse 22, it says, then it pleased the apostles and elders. It pleased the apostles and elders. Do you know what that means? We, we, didn't, hear, we didn't hear anything after that. Do you know what that means? They agreed. They just like, they're like, okay. <laughs> right? That is a miracle. You guys understand that? That that is such a radical miracle. The fact that at the end of the day, they all agreed on something. Right? The fact that they all just at the end of the day, okay, we'll accept that. Some, do you know what the Pharisees might have not been, been super stoked on it, right? But at the end of the day, they're like, well, he used scripture. There's testimony. Their church authority. Okay. Whoa, right? Like that was it. That was just the end of it. They all agreed. Some of the elders within them in the beginning didn't agree. Now they were all fine. It says, and it pleased the apostles and elders. They were good. They're like, okay. At the end of the day, they all agreed. That is a miracle. The Pharisees didn't get up in the room. They didn't stop everything. Oh, they, they just, they're like, okay. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says this. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Guys, back then, when you were building a house, stones didn't always fit perfectly, Right? Stones didn't always fit. They were of different shapes and sizes. They had to rub against each other to eventually fit each other's mold. Stones had to grind and chafe against one another, right? They had, they had, to, they had to be molded to, to both sides, had to be grinded down to actually be built up as living as stones to make a house. And Peter is saying, you as living stones are being built up in a spiritual house. And in that, we're going to have disagreements. We're going to have uh, difficulties. We're going to grind against one another. And you know, woe to the Christian who says, do you know what? I just, I, I just can't, I can't compromise in this. Woe to the Christian who, who won't endeavor for unity because they're never going to experience what it's like to be a part of a spiritual house. Right? What it's like to be a part of a spiritual house. We are living stones of this house. This local church, we, we are stones that build this place. Peter would say that Christ is the cornerstone and the teachings of the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. So we have Christ and his gospel is the cornerstone, the utmost foundation, which is built upon scripture, prophets and apostles, built upon scripture. Then after that, it's us grinding against one another, right? It's us grinding against one another. It's us, it's us endeavoring. It's us arguing. It's us contending with one another. But at the end of the day, our goal is the same, right? Our goal is to build up a spiritual house that will last. God speak is your home church if you're here. Hopefully. You know, you may have your other home church and this is something that you go to on Wednesdays. But whatever home church you belong to, you are a living stone in that church. And, and we're so, you know, sometimes we just, we get rubbed the wrong way 
we got to rub back. We, we, we got to be endeavoring here. We have to. Guys, any, any pastor on staff, any, any church staff member will tell you, I, I do not always agree. You know, we don't always agree. We, we got to rub it. We, we got to find some sort of, that, that's the last thing that I'm going to tell you guys. You must, are you willing to compromise? Not compromise your conviction, not compromise scripture, not compromise truth, but are you willing to set aside your opinions? Are you willing to set aside your own kingdom for the sake of something greater than you are? Right? Are you, are you willing to be wrong so that the house may be built further? Right? Or do you have to be so right? Do you have to be so right that you are a house of one stone? Do you know what a house with one stone is called? A stone. <laughs> That's it. Right? We have to be willing to work with people. We have to be willing to endeavor. We have to be willing to, to grind. We have to be willing to disagree. And at the end of the day, we have to be willing to submit I like how the Pharisees here and and a bunch of the elders, you know, they were divided. They argued, right? It says that they argued here. So that doesn't just mean it was like one guy versus everybody, right? It was was, was like the room was divided. It may not have been half and half, but the room was divided. And at the end of the day, they came to an agreement. Not based on, well, I want to be right or I want to be right, but based on testimony, scripture, authority. I guess so. And you may not have the satisfaction of being right, but you'll have the satisfaction of getting to heaven and one day hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. You may not get the immediate satisfaction of winning that argument, but you will get the satisfaction at the end of holding hand to hand with your brother, with calloused hands, because you've been working on building the house of God. And at the end of the day, Christ will look at you both who once argued and say, well done. Well done. Unity. Unity is what we're striving for. And so some of you have been straying away from quads in our group, discipleship groups, because of that specific problem. Well, what if I don't agree with anybody? Some of you haven't been serving at the church or you stopped serving at the church because you just couldn't agree with everything. Guys, if I had stopped serving the church because I didn't agree with everything, I would have lasted probably like two months here. Been here for six years. I love it. And it's not always easy. Right? You have to be willing to be wrong. You have to be willing to be corrected. Serve one another. Find a way to get plugged in here. Find a way to serve here. Find a way to get plugged into discipleship groups. Find a, find a way to get involved with this house. Amen? And it won't be easy, but it'll be awesome. Let's pray. Lord, we are... We are grateful to you, Lord, and I just pray that you continue to build us up as living stones. God, I'm I'm so amazed by the apostles and the elders, their ability to argue and then come together for your glory. At the end of the day, so many people were blessed as a result of this, us included. God, our church wouldn't be here if it weren't for this decision. Thank you. And God, some, someday the decision that we make in some sort of argument may actually affect future generations. Allow us to be kingdom-minded. Lord, allow us to put our selfish ambitions aside. We are grateful to you.
God, continue to sanctify us, purify us. Give us a heart that cries out for you, Lord. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.